0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Katie Herzog. Katie's the host of the Very Funny Blocked and Reported podcast along with Jesse Single. She was also a staff writer at The Stranger for many years. She's also a great visual artist. In this episode, we talk about Katie's upbringing as a lesbian in a less than accepting environment. We also discuss the rapid rise in the salience of trans issues in the past couple years. We discuss the element of social contagion in the recent rise of Gen Z girls with gender dysphoria. We discuss the mission creep of gay rights organizations. We discuss the increasing salience of drag queens in the culture as well as the backlash against them. We discuss the concept of being non-binary. We talk about the difference between male and female sexuality. We talk about pedophilia and so-called virtuous pedophiles. We talk about puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and gender reassignment surgery. Katie gives advice to parents with gender dysphoric children. We discuss trans women in sports. We talk about the so-called don't say gay bill and much more. So without further ado, Katie Herzog. All right, Katie Herzog, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to. It's good to see you.
0: So I actually went out on Twitter to see what people wanted us to talk about. And I think 50% of the requests were for us to roast Jesse single for about an <laughs> hour and a half. So Easy. let it begin. Um,
1: He's too tall, man. Let's just start with the physical shit. He's too tall.
0: Oh my God. I mean, that's, the, that's just the beginning of it. You know, facial features.
1: Let's get the calipers out.
0: Opinions, like bigotry. Terrible opinions. His pedophilia is probably the worst of it for me.
1: I'm, a, I'm actually okay with that. Oh, you know, Some okay. people are just born that way.
0: That's true. It's a valid identity.
1: Mm-hmm. I keep saying this. Yeah, there's a, a stripe on the flag for it.
0: <laughs> in all seriousness, you host a podcast with the great Jesse Single, who has been on this podcast and is a friend, and it's called Blocked and Reported. And uh, it's really a, it's an excellent podcast. You guys break down news stories and who's wrong in the internet and delve into Twitter controversies in a way that is entertaining and you always have good takes on the latest Twitter controversy of the day. I think it's something a lot of, if my audience doesn't know, I think it's something a lot of people in my audience would enjoy.
1: Thanks, Coleman. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of overlap between our audiences. Yeah. Camille accuses us of being fifth column fan fiction. And I think there's some validity to that, but we, <laughs> we try to do our own thing a little bit.
0: Yeah. Michael Moynihan accuses you of being a fifth column cover band. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's fair. It's fair.
0: <laughs> so I guess that there's a lot we can talk about. I thought and I've been wanting to get you on for, for a long time, but I thought I would frame the conversation this way. Basically, you know, in the past seven years, eight years of American life, there has been a huge revolution and lots of conversation about the issue of gender identity in particular. And I guess I'll just give you like my little window into this whole conversation, which is the first 20 years of my life or so, I recall there being a lot of controversy Mm -hmm. about gay marriage and gays in the military. And from the very first time I thought of the issue, probably as a 10 or 11 year old, I thought it was obvious that gay marriage should be Legal and I truly did not understand at all the opposition to it because I knew very few devout Christians in my life. I grew up in a suburb of New York, and I there was some kind of homophobia on the in my extended family that I could detect. But um, you know, the answer seemed obvious to me, and then the answer legally came very quickly. Gay marriage became the law of the land, and the conversation seemed to have resolved itself on the right issue kind of quicker than I had expected and then and trans issues were not very salient to me in the first i would say 18 years of my life and then in the past 7 we've been dealing with a whole different set of questions not can you get married but a set of questions that seem to me to have less obvious answers like what should the protocol be for a kid with gender dysphoria? You know, how many years of counseling should such a kid need to have before medically transitioning? Um, you know, what what do we do with trans people who commit crimes and go to prison? Which prison do you go to? These sorts of questions seem to me a lot less obvious than the you know the question people were asking in 2010 about should gay people be allowed to get married. And so that's kind of I've felt I can see often see both sides of the issue and I guess broadly it's incredibly difficult to be a person with gender dysphoria. It's an incredibly confusing and tough and unlucky lot to have. And there's a side of the conversation which quickly will support the pro trans sort of side of the issue or what's perceived as a pro-trans side of the issues and maybe give me some of your biography too.
1: Yeah. So pretty similar trajectory to you, although I'm I'm a bit older than you. And so gay marriage, for most of my life, gay marriage seemed like Mm -hmm. an impossibility. And I came out when I was 20. And at the time it seemed like this was never going to happen. This was in the early 2000s. And you know, I would have friends who, up until 2015, when uh, the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, I would have friends who would have these like ceremonies, and it always felt fake to me. It felt like two people sort of exchange, like two kindergartners exchanging ring pops. You know, it seemed very, it seemed very symbolic, I suppose, but also fake. And so, in 2015, this rapid shift. I had, you know, I, I'm from Western North Carolina. I came from a place where. I didn't know any gay people. There was actually, there was like two gay boys, two out boys in my high school. But gayness was so uncommon that it didn't even occur to me that I could be gay because Mm. nobody was gay. I was a kid when Ellen came out. I remember the years when, you know, you would turn on talk radio and she was being called Ellen Degenerate. It did seem very odd Mm. and freakish, even for somebody who was really sort of a little baby dike, And I had a, uh, when I was in high school, I had a group of friends. I didn't, there were no lesbians in my high school. There's maybe one, maybe one like the head of the softball team, the pitcher or something like that. And, uh, but for the most part, there was just no representation at all after high school of my group of friends it turned out that three or four of us ended up marrying women we're actually we were gay the whole time we just didn't even talk it like didn't even yeah. occur to us or didn't occur to me at least that this could be a possibility so it took me sort of a while to even come to realize the fact that i was gay which is sort of ironic because when i was in high school people were also constantly telling me that i was a dyke and i guess they <laughs> they knew something i didn't but so it was, i i came from a, a from a not a super homophobic place but a, a fairly homophobic place And so when I moved to, when I grew up and moved to cities, you know, I I became immersed in this sort of queer culture and I started meeting trans people around that time. And there were always trans guys on the, not even on the periphery, there were always trans guys who were sort of welcome in, in lesbian spaces, but they were rare. You know, there would be like one or two within the scene. And then that has changed really, really rapidly in the past couple of years. So I remember sort of first, Noticing this, and uh, I think in 2014, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had a friend there. My, my best friend there was a trans guy, and he lived in a house. He had been um, identified as a lesbian before, and he lived in a house with uh, four or five other lesbians. And he came out, or queer women, the term lesbian has been out of fashion for a long time, but basically lesbians. And he came out as trans, and then within a year, everybody in his household had come out with trans. And he told me this, and I thought, like, this is statistically impossible. This Something weird is going on here. This is this must be an anomaly. So this was 2014, so however many, six years ago. And in that time, I have seen that that pattern repeats among different households, different communities, different scenes over and over and over. So when I moved to Seattle, I was friends with uh, about five other dykes. Four of them have had top surgery three of them have are on testosterone and all of them either go by he him or they them. I'm the only one of the group who is still a woman. and I have just seen this repeat over and over and over. And so something something remarkable has changed, not just with the the amount of attention that this receives, which is obviously a lot more than it was when I was a kid and the only the only trans representation was like on Jerry Springer, you know and you would stay home from school and there would be some story about a she male you could see on your, watch on your sick days. So obviously that has changed quite a bit. I think that there's a couple of forces at play here. I think part of it is that after the success of gay marriage, you had this infrastructure, groups like HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, and these various state and citywide groups that had been really focused on gay marriage for years, that was the issue. Gays in the military and then also gay marriage were the primary civil rights issues at the time. Mm-hmm. And they pivoted. They didn't say, oh, we, we did it. Let's, you know, fold up the tent and go home and get new jobs. They pivoted to trans rights. And I think that was really the start of what of this massive shift from focusing on gay rights, which for the most part have been solved on sort of a legal basis, at least. Although I think we're seeing a lot of backlash now. To this focus on trans rights. And you can even, you can see this in things like the human rights campaign. If you look at their annual reports and you search for words like trans or lesbian or gay, what you will find is much less focus Mm -hmm. on gay rights and much more focus on trans rights. And there is a, you know, a rational reason for that. Gay rights is kind of solved, at least on a a legal, if not cultural, cultural level. Um, So I, I think that's what has happened. And that has come with some real consequences. You know, the trans rights thing, it really, it started out being about legal protections and and people not being able to be fired for their jobs, for their gender identity, or, you know, to, to have equal access to housing and things like this. And then like many movements, it has crept and evolved and mutated into these tangential issues that I think are actually going to damage the cause of trans rights and damage the cause of of gay rights. I think we're seeing a a giant backlash right now to things like trans women in sports, youth puberty blockers. And I think ultimately this is going to be bad for genuinely dysphoric people as well as gays and lesbians. So it's Mm -hmm. a strange time. It's a strange time to be observing all of this and commenting on it.
0: I'm struck by your observation about, uh, you know, these groups that formed in an era where gay people couldn't get married and where it looked like gay people wouldn't be able to get married perhaps for decades. You know, it, it, it looked like that might've been 20 years away. It's easy to forget, but you had Obama and and Hillary probably as late as like, I don't know, 2012, pretty much signaling oh, yeah. the party line, which was marriages between a man and a woman, even among Democrats. So to think that right. within the next two years, it would be the law of the land. I mean, in a way it was kind of a, um, a shocking victory and maybe a Pyrrhic victory. It was like a, a victory that came too quick and maybe popped a balloon of, of a lot of legitimate and noble activist energy around the issue. And um, it's possible to be a victim of your own success, a victim of your own victory. Like what this has happened on the issue of racism as well, which is all these organizations that formed between 1910 and 1960 around the issue of civil rights. Once you get the major civil rights legislation passed in the mid sixties, they don't suddenly say, we won, everyone go home. You know, their institutions have an inertia and a kind of self-justification. People don't like to declare their own irrelevance. And that's, it's kind of an unhappy situation or paradox for them to be in because you can commit yourself to a really important issue and God forbid you win, it becomes, you become this kind of, you declare your own irrelevance or, or you risk having to do that or verge into, you know, things that are more and more minutia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right about this. Activists activate. That's what they do. They do activism. And and so, and I understand that, just sort of a self-preservation mode, you know, you've spent your life working on this thing, it would feel more natural to pivot to the next thing. But the next thing is smaller and smaller and smaller. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about trans women in in women's sports, which... (laughs) You know, I mean, if you think about the last 70 years of the civil rights movement, this Mm -hmm. is the thing that we're focusing on. Like, this is the issue of the day. In some ways, I think that shows a real success that, you know, right now the big fights are over Leah Thomas and a, you know, divorced father of two who wants to be called Brenda and use the women's Mm -hmm. room, you know, in a way there's some, some beauty to that. It shows that progress really has been made. But my main concern at this point, and I think we're seeing this right now, is this, is this very real backlash that we're seeing, particularly in red states. I think there's a lot of panic over this, the drag panic this week, the week before it was the groomer panic. And then we are seeing some very draconian and I think cruel bills come out of red states. Um, And a lot of people have blamed Jesse, my co-host in particular for this, because he has, he and I have both written about Mm -hmm. gender dysphoria and detransition. And I think the logic goes, if you point out that this thing is happening, you are somehow responsible for the backlash to it. I'm not, it's not logical. So I don't totally understand. Yeah.
0: So um, one thing we'll we'll get to all that stuff, but one thing I want to touch on at the beginning is the shift in the philosophy towards gender identity that I've seen In my lifetime, which is, I remember when I was in pre-K, I thought it was arbitrary that boys were supposed to like blue and girls were supposed to like pink. And I was a little contrarian. So I would say that I liked pink just to Mm -hmm. piss my, Mm -hmm. in my head, to piss my stupid teachers off and to show them that I understood all this stuff was arbitrary just to be a little douchebag. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't actually like pink. I just liked to be, (laughs) you know, I just liked to show that arbitrary things were arbitrary as as a three-year-old or four-year-old. But basically, what I recall of the ethos of that time, which again, I grew up in a pretty progressive place, was there's no right way to be a boy. There's no right way to be a girl. If you want to be a girl and you love sports and you love cutting your hair short and you like roughhousing with the boys, that's a perfectly valid way to be a girl. Uh, we you would we would have called it a tomboy. You're a tomboy, and that's fine. If you want to be a boy and wear dresses, that's fine. You know, like they, That's a valid way to be a boy too. One thing I and many other people have noted is that the current attitude, especially among trans activists and progressives seems to be importantly different in that if you display the stereotypical behaviors of the other sex, then perhaps you really are the other gender, right? Perhaps your gender identity is not a boy if you like to wear dresses. And that may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it could be material in that the latter attitude potentially puts you on a track for eventual medical transition and social transition and pronoun transition. Whereas the first would put you on a track towards being, you know, oh, Katie's a tomboy, she's a tomboy and whatever attitude people have towards that. So I'm curious if you also observe that difference in philosophy.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is something I, people are probably sick of hearing me complain about this. Yeah. In the first, uh, the first version of this, the way that you were raised and the way that I was raised, there was an expansion of the idea of gender roles. I think this was easier for. I think it's always been easier for girls, at least in in my lifetime, right, to be gender yeah. nonconforming or gender role nonconforming. It, you know, because women wear pants, it is it is a little bit weirder for a, right. for a boy to wear a skirt. Um, and there's probably going to be some oh, bullying lot, that yeah. comes along with that. But yes, the whole idea, right? The whole idea was to expand what it meant to be a boy or what it meant to be a girl. Your sex doesn't define who you are, or what you can do. And we've seen a retraction. In recent years, I think the not the whole idea of non-binary is sort of a bristling against that. I still object to the idea of being non-binary because I think it's it's sort of a selfish individual act to say, I'm opting out of gender roles, but you still, you who are who are still female, you you have not opted out of this. So I have some problems with that whole concept. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. And this is something that people slightly older than me, people like Megan Delm, who's raised in the seventies, have talked about, you know, in in the seventies, this this idea. Everybody wore were overalls, you know it was this much more gender neutral today it's really hard to find even children's clothes that are non-gendered toys are much more gendered uh, so i think part of this is a uh, is market forces sort of imposing this on people and this is not to say that i don't think there are actual differences between males and females i think this is one of the things that i fight with feminists about i think that there are some inherent differences biological differences that make men more prone to certain things and make women more prone to, to to other things. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But yes, this idea that, you know, you, you see this in the literature, like little kids books, there'll be some kids book about that's sort of supposed to be a pro trans book. And in the book, it'll be, there'll be a picture of a little boy who says that he doesn't like, he, you know, he doesn't like the color blue. And then all of a sudden he's a girl now. And I find that deeply regressive. Gender dysphoria, there's obviously a huge argument about this, but gender dysphoria in my mind, is a, basically a medical condition. It's a mental health issue. It's something that people have had for a long time, and it typically emerges really young in life. I don't think that a, an infant could... Uh, there's this. some liberals and gender ideologues will say, you know, babies can signal signal that they're born in the wrong body. I don't think babies can actually do that. But I, I think even perhaps toddlers can. You know, they say things like, I, you know, I wish that God had made me a boy, or I yeah. wish that God had made me a girl or something like that. That's real. The distress is real. And I think people should, there should be adequate and evidence-based treatments for that. But there's this other thing going on, often called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is much more socially influenced. And a lot of people want to deny that this exists, but you can just look at the numbers and you can look at the population of kids who are now showing up to gender clinics. It used to be there were more boys, natal boys, natal males than girls would go to these clinics. In the past, decade or so, as these numbers have spiked of patients appearing at these clinics, the vast majority of them Mm -hmm. are natal females. You know, and so we're supposed to ignore that forever it is known known that girls, especially pubescent girls, are intensely subject to social pressure. It is very important for girls to, to fit in. You know, when I was in high school, Every other girl was anorexic, bulimic, or a cutter. That was the thing. The ones that weren't were goth, or maybe all of maybe all of the above. But now it's become this. We've attached these identity labels to this thing, and once something becomes an identity, you can't question it. It becomes sacrosanct. So it makes the, the conversation intensely difficult to have because of the backlash and the, of course, the uh, the allegations. If you question this stuff, that you are literally killing trans people, which I get quite often. Yeah, I think, there's, I think the vibe shift is coming, but uh, over the last few years, we've seen just really bad ideas spread, I think, especially among uh, adolescents and children, the people who care for them.
0: Question. What would you do if your business had to hire someone great fast? Here's a hint. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for the candidates with the right skills, Indeed helps you do it all in one place. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. No other job site takes care of you like Indeed does. Because with Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. Indeed puts you in control of what you pay. You set your must-have job requirements and only pay for the applications that meet them. There's a transparent flat fee per application, and you can pause your job posting whenever you want. When you sponsor an Indeed post, you're 4.5 times more likely to get a hire, according to Indeed data worldwide. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Visit indeed.com conversations to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com conversations. Once again, That's indeed.com slash conversations. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to read one statistic that blew my mind. And I believe I read this in Abigail Schreier's book.
1: What was that book called? Irreversible Damage.
0: Yeah, she wrote Irreversible Damage, I think last year, and it got banned from Amazon for a while. And I think later... Reallowed as an anti-trans bigoted book, but she basically is making the point you just made about rapid onset gender dysphoria, about the reality of social contagion. And social contagion, this is, I mean, there's nothing unique on the trans issue. On the point of social contagion, social contagion we've been seeing on all kinds of issues. There was an Atlantic article a few months ago about an outbreak of social contagion of Tourette's syndrome among mostly among girls and, mm-hmm. and among girls that are on TikTok. There will be there's these TikTok Tourette's influencers that will show you their Tourette's, their tics, and doctors all around the country have been seeing inexplicable rise in girls with Tourette's, and all of them are on TikTok and. There's really no other explanation other than that these girls are following Tourette's influencers on TikTok. And then actually feel like they are basically catching the ticks from this influencer that's kind of this cool and like high status person. And, you know, there's nothing, I worry sometimes about feeling like you're making fun of people that are caught in in a social contagion or saying that they're mentally weak or something like that. It's really nothing like that. All it is, is basically the reverse of the placebo effect, right? Like no matter how Mm -hmm. objective or reality-based you think you are, I think the truth is we know if we put you in a medical experiment and give you a sugar pill and you have a disease, there's a pretty good chance you're going to actually feel better getting a pill that has nothing in it. That's just a fact about human psychology. It's one of the weird things about us. And social contagion is nothing more than the placebo effect in reverse, which is to say you end up feeling worse. You feel symptomatic of something, whether it's gender dysphoria or Tourette's. There's been hiccups, outbreaks. There's been all kinds of social contagion stuff. And you essentially get it as a consequence of your peer influences. So all of that is to to preface this statistic, I read in Abigail Schreier's book, which is from the American Association of Plastic Surgeons. The American Association of Plastic Surgeons reported the percent change in male-to-female gender confirmation surgeries and the percent change in female-to-male gender confirmation surgeries from 2016 to 2017. There was a 41 percent uptick in male-to-female surgeries and a 289 percent uptick in female to male surgeries in one year. So almost a tripling of people seeking to look more like men, but only a 41% increase in people seeming wanting to look more like women, which is very strange because if it were only about society lowering the overall stigma on being trans, you wouldn't expect to see such massive differences by which way People are going. Whereas, if it were about social contagion, which in every other, almost every other case I've looked at, tends to hit women harder than men, this is more or less what you would expect to see.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, There was a Pew came out with a study a couple weeks ago. About 5% of young adults in the US now consider themselves trans or non binary. That's a huge percentage. And it sort of flies in the face of this rhetoric that gay activists have repeated for a long time born this way and it's made me sort of change my mind about 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 that idea that you know sexuality and gender identity are something that that you're born with i think in genuine cases yes that's true but i think there's something else going on here and this isn't necessarily a bad thing i think it's bad if people medicalize a condition that they don't have that they are going to regret later. That's certainly bad. But just inherently, humans are a memetic species. Everything from fashion, music, the food we, the dog breeds that we have, the number of children that we have, all of these things are influenced. Our politics, the names that we give our children All of these things are influenced by the people around us. That's just inherent to being a human. And we're supposed to pretend that this one aspect is somehow outside of that.
0: Yeah, so I guess I do feel there's a difference between sexuality and gender identity. So like with sexuality, with my sexual orientation, you get evidence of exactly what you find attractive from your body. And it's actual evidence mm-hmm. that is in principle observable by a third party, right? Like you could, and people have done, do mm-hmm. weird studies where they show you porn and they they like hook up electrodes to whatever and, and see what arouses you right? And that that's actually, right. which is not to say it's impossible to be confused or self-deceived about your sexuality, right? Like you can be all of those things. But at the end of the day, there is this literal physical reaction, almost akin to like an, an allergy. Like you can only deceive yourself about being allergic to peanuts for so long, even if it's a mild allergy, you can just run the test. And that's, you get similar kind of evidence to what arouses you and what doesn't, even if it changes over time. And the fundamental difference between sexuality and gender identity is that gender identity really seems like just a conversation you're having with yourself in your own mind. And there's no real evidence to fall back on if you're confused about what you are. It's just kind of like, it's a create your own adventure with no rules and no one knows how many genders there are. And yeah, I, I guess there's, it seems like there's in a condition of confusion if you're confused about what your gender identity is, you're sort of going through it, you're finding yourself. It seems like there's very, there's very little solid ground to fall back on other than what you're feeling in the moment and who's around you and what kind of information you're consuming.
1: Yeah, gender identity itself is a relatively new concept. It came out of the 1960s. I'm not sure I actually believe in the concept of gender identity. I don't think that I have a gender identity. I know that I am female. I think that gender dysphoria is a mental health condition, but this has just been accepted, especially in recent years, that we all have this gender identity. It's like a soul, you know, it exists somewhere in the body or the brain, but nobody can point to exactly where. And it is reinforced by stereotypes or maybe relies on stereotypes. I've had this conversation. I know a lot of people who identify as non binary, and I've this conversation with a lot of them, and I ask, you know, uh, what does it mean to be non binary? And the conversation always goes the same way. Well, I don't feel like a male, or I don't feel like a man, or I don't feel like a woman. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, some days I want to wear masculine clothes, and some days I want to wear feminine clothes. And to me, that's just a reliance on stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's this now I think it's a fad to identify out of this for various different reasons, one of which is that, as you know, it is hip to be different and in some ways victimized in the culture that we're in now. With sexuality, I've I've read some of these studies that that you mentioned where they hook people up to electrodes and basically measure their biological response. And one thing that I find interesting about these studies is that female sexuality appears to be much more fluid than male sexuality. I do think that sexuality is something that is for the most part inborn, but I think the expression of it is socially constructed or, or socially influenced. So for instance, My wife, she was born in Alaska, came from a fundamentalist Christian family or or evangelical Christian family. If she had stayed in her hometown, I think that she would be married Mm -hmm. to a man right now. And I don't think that I think it was moving to a city and being exposed to gay people that allowed her to embrace this thing that was probably always inside of her. But I don't think she would have even recognized it had she stayed in her hometown. The same way that I didn't recognize that I was a dyke until I was 20 and went to college because I needed to see other people around me who were doing this thing to be like, oh, that's an option. So I do think it's inborn or at least attraction is inborn, but I think the expression of it is is very socially influenced.
0: That's a great point. I mean, I think without realizing it, I was probably speaking from a male point of view and I've had conversations with guy friends over the course of my life of like, when was the first time you got an erection? And it's mm-hmm. always an interesting conversation for me i remember what it was it was the scene in coming to america where there's like the naked women in the in the bathtub and i i wasn't <laughs> supposed to be seeing that movie but my parents were out of town and my grandparents were taking care of me and they just they were dropping the ball and they let me see it an adult movie and then this thing starts <laughs> happening in my body i'm like i have no idea you have no idea what it is but you know i think pretty much almost every man i've Talk to about that has an analogous story where it's it's the first time your body gave you objective evidence that you are attracted to this or that or both or whatever. And um, again, not to say you can't be confused about it, not to say it can't change slowly over time, but it's really i think maybe far less subject to influence by your social world or by the ideas that you're consuming because at the end of the day it's like it's your body's either reacting or it's not and and there's a very little malleability there
1: yeah this is the this is why conversion therapy doesn't work and i am talking about conversion therapy when it uh, when it applies to sexuality there's that term is often thrown around when it comes to gender identity but specifically with sexuality it doesn't work And that's also why I have some sympathy towards what are now referred to as non-offending pedophiles or minor attracted people, because I think that like everybody else, their sexuality is, or at least their attractions are probably hardwired. This is something that- Like
0: Jesse Single. (laughs) Like
1: Jesse Single. Just
0: to be clear, Jesse is not a pedophile. This is (laughs) something that continually,
1: yeah. Oh, no, he is. No, he is. Uh, this is something that, that we've talked about on the show quite a bit. Not Jesse's pedophilia, but uh, this the maps, that the, the mm-hmm. minor attractive people, non-offending mm-hmm. pedophiles, virtuous pedophiles, as they're also known. And I've interviewed Not one of my more popular takes.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's hard for me to see how you could disagree with it. I mean, mm-hmm. if someone like Ted Bundy, who clearly, this guy clearly just enjoyed, he just enjoyed killing women. He got off to it and he was sick. Mm-hmm. He was psychotic if he had somehow rationally determined that to have the willpower to just not do it to just spend a lifetime fantasizing about it and i don't know channel it somehow and just watch yeah. movies or something and just just get the energy out some other way of his two options that's the far better option and for people that are built with something where they just do want something that is wrong and they recognize that i don't see how you could how you could truly blame them because none of us are, you know, all of us who aren't pedophiles are at some level lucky not to have been born that way.
1: Oh, absolutely. This is not something that anybody asks for. And many child molesters are not actually pedophiles. Pedophilia is a paraphilia. It's in the DSM. It is a mental health condition or a diagnosis. There are lots of people who abuse children who don't have pedophilia, are not pedophiles, but they abuse them because of they don't have access to sex. It's a power thing. Uh, they're you know, there's various different reasons. So yeah, it's, but this is, every time we talk about this on the show, we, <laughs> we lose subscribers because people have this very understandable knee-jerk disgust when you're talking about kitty diddling.
0: I, th- I mean, you should have a knee-jerk disgust. I, I think it, it's yes. uh, of, yes. of all the things <laughs> to be knee-jerk disgusted by. I think it's totally appropriate. Okay, so I, I guess I want to, I want to talk about sort of, hormones and transitioning because I've talked about this a few times before on the podcast and I've gotten messages from parents of kids that are you know, 14, 16, 18, who identify as trans and don't know what to do because basically how I see it, there is unsolvable paradox, which is if you're a kid with gender dysphoria and you're 15, 14, 15 years old, basically one of two things basically there there's a there's an inevitable trade-off which is that the sooner you start let's say you're even 11 or 12 the sooner you start with puberty blockers hormones and so forth the more likely you are to really be able to persuasively look like the gender you want to look like but the sooner you start the less developed your mind is the less sure of your of yourself you are even if you're confident it's like we don't 12-year-olds don't know what they're going to be like in in even two or three years, don't know what they're going to want in six years or or 10 years usually. So there's a trade-off between how early you start and how likely you are to regret your decisions. And it's very difficult in the general case to answer, what is a parent to do there? You know, if your kid is is telling you stably for year, I mean, there, there are cases where people have wanted stably for years to be the other gender. And then at 22, 25 years old have detransitioned and regretted that decision. So what is, um, what insight would you have to give? I mean, you're not a doctor, obviously, but like what insight from, from studying this issue would you have to give to, to people dealing with this impossible trade-off where every decision seems like it, it can turn out horribly?
1: Yeah, this is really difficult. And I get this question a lot. The first thing that I do is I refer to parents who need support to other parental support groups, because this is something, especially if you're in a progressive milieu, this is something that you probably can't talk to your friends about, or maybe can't talk to your friends about because this narrative has proliferated. You know, these this rhetoric gets spewed, things like, you know, I'd rather have a dead or I'd rather have a live son than a dead daughter or whatever it is. People, it's this sort of emotional blackmail where people rely on this idea that if kids aren't able to transition or get puberty blockers on demand, they're going to kill themselves. The data doesn't actually bear that out.
0: So by the way, yeah, so as how true. I mean, I've seen one study on that where the pre and post-op suicide rates were basically the same, but Do you have a sense of that whole literature? What's true there?
1: Jesse is is much better on the literature than I am, but it appears as though we do not have reliable evidence that access to puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones greatly reduces suicidal ideation. So if I were a parent, this is what I would do. I would be supportive of my child and make sure that the child knew that they were loved and cared for, but I would also probably not allow my kid to get puberty blockers. And the reason for this is because you will hear activists will say that puberty blockers are 100% reversible. This is not true. There are lots of consequences to taking puberty blockers even if you do even if a child has is genuinely dysphoric and I should say I think there's a big difference between a child who from the age of 3 years old starts saying god gave me the wrong body and has genuine phys- distress with their physical body, not their gender roles, but their physical body. And someone who Around the age of puberty, starts exhibiting signs of gender dysphoria. In one case, I think you're much more likely to find that it is a a genuine, long held, very problematic issue and should be addressed. And the other one, people are more likely to grow out of it. And even kids with gender dysphoria, like I was a kid who, if I were born now, if I were a young person now, I would almost certainly be diagnosed with gender dysphoria because I was very uncomfortable with my body growing up around puberty, very uncomfortable with it. I was a tomboy, you know, the only girl in Little League. I was was that sort. And I grew up like most people with gender dysphoria do to just be a lesbian. And that's fine. That doesn't require medical, lifelong medical intervention. But okay, so back to blockers. The reason that I would not let my kid, if I were a parent, use puberty blockers is because the side effects are serious. There's issues with bone density. So if you just Google Lupron side effects, you'll find these stories of kids who are given Lupron, not even for puberty blocker. That is the, that is sort of the big puberty blocker, but kids who are given them for precocious puberty. And they have things like spinal fractures when they're really young. They have get diagnosed. So
0: this is kids that are going through puberty at like eight years old or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, and then, you know, they end up with osteoporosis as young people. So there are issues like that. That's real. But even if these kids, let's say you have a kid who is deeply gender dysphoric, has been from a young age, will probably want to transition and you feel solid. You think that this is the right thing to do. And of course, people can always change their mind, but you think that this is the right thing to do. The kid thinks it's the right thing to do. If you take puberty blockers, in some ways, and it depends on if you're male or female, it's obviously easier for females, so trans men, F to M, to pass than it is for males, male and females to pass. But if you go on puberty blockers, let's say you're, if you're a girl, a female, and you want to be a boy, puberty blockers make you shorter. That's not going to help you pass. If you're a male and you take puberty blockers, your penis won't develop. This is—it depends on what it's called—the Tanner stages of development. But if you take it in the earlier, earlier stages of development, you get basically a micro penis. If you have a micro penis, there's not going to be enough flesh to make a, a viable neo-vagina. This is what happened to Jazz Jennings, who is one of the most famous trans kids in the world, who is now an adult and had had to have something like four corrective surgeries because. Uh, her penis wasn't big enough to turn into a vagina. There's also issues with sexual dysfunction. So kids on puberty blockers, not all of them, and it depends on what stage you go on, but kids, some kids who go on pu- puberty blockers will never have an orgasm in their life. And if you're a kid who doesn't understand the concept of orgasm, I don't think it is ethical to ask a child who cannot possibly conceive of what they are mm-hmm. giving up to give up this thing before they can even mm-hmm. conceive of it. So I've sort of come around on puberty blockers. I used to think with thorough diagnosis, kids who are g- deeply and genuinely persistently dysphoric, maybe it's the best option. I don't think that anymore. If there were no, if these side effects didn't exist, I would probably change my mind, but they do exist. And I don't think it is fair to condemn a child to a lifetime of no orgasming for their entire adult life before they can understand it. So for me, it's just a basic consent issue. But Social transition is a different thing. That is reversible. You can sort of ease into it. I have sympathy for these people. I I know a lot of trans people and some of whom I think, you know, probably would have, if given the option, taken puberty blockers and been happy for it. It would have been the, the right decision. But I just think you can't consent to something that you can't understand in this particular case. So I would... I personally obviously I'm not a doctor what people should do is is find a, a trustworthy clinician and therapist to talk to. I would personally I would not give my kids puberty blockers. I also however have a dog who still has his balls so I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm in general in general I'm against the medical interventions, right? Right? <laughs> I won't even castrate my dog much less a child.
0: Maybe you're not there. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of related issues here. One is what's called desistance from gender dysphoria, which is the fact that for many people, gender dysphoria just goes away over time. Like whether, yeah whether because they're going to therapy and they, you know, I've read, I've spent time reading the subreddit, I think it's called rdtrans, which is, you know, over 20, I think over 20,000 mm-hmm. people that are at various stages of detransitioning which is to say they've, they transitioned to the other gender and are now regretting that decision and transitioning back. Or uh, some of them are dissisters people who had gender dysphoria and then just no longer have it. And I came across a lot of people that a very common story on that subreddit is I thought I, or I did have gender dysphoria for a few years and then I did mushrooms and I realized that I could be okay in the body that I had. Mm -hmm. Or you know i'm i've been autistic my whole life and i began in my teens really fixating on this concept of being the other gender and just thinking about it every day. And then, you know, I dropped acid or I got high once and I realized that I'm, I was, I was fixating on it as a kind of anxiety coping mechanism or or something. And that I shouldn't actually, it doesn't actually mean that I'm trans. I don't think I'm actually the same as someone who has a stable trans identity. And there was, you know, there's one post I read, which broke my heart, which was a, a person who said, you know, they were, absolutely sure that they were trans. They were like, you couldn't even talk to them. You couldn't introduce any amount of doubt or skepticism. And they, I think they got surgery and then had one of these experiences where they realized that they were fixating on something that wasn't actually the problem. They were depressed or they were It was some other mental illness temporarily expressing itself as gender dysphoria. And now they were saddled with all of these post-surgical complications. And um, this is a part of the conversation that's considered taboo in left-wing spaces and will occasionally get your tweets censored or your books censored but it's impossible for me to not want to throw the spotlight on those, these people because they're going through something that may be avoidable, may have been avoidable with better and more open conversations. And it is, is, has to be a part of the story that's worth talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we don't know how many people have detransitions there, there's better numbers, I think, sort of historical numbers on desistance, because you can look at the number of people who have gone through gender identity clinics who end up not going on uh, cross-sex hormones. And those studies have been done for decades. And they all show basically the same thing, which is that somewhere between like 60 and 90% of the people, at least back uh, before this, this wave of ROGD would desist. And and many of them would grow up to be gays and lesbians because gays and lesbians tend to be more gender nonconforming. It's obvious.
0: (laughs) So I was talking about detransitioners in general and, um,
1: And so when it comes to detransitioners, we don't know, even, we don't even have an approximation of the number of people who have detransitioned or who regret their transition because so many people are lost to follow up. During these studies, and very few detransitioners go back to their surgeons or their clinicians and say, hey, buddy, you got it wrong. For whatever reason, that tends to be something that people don't do. So clinicians aren't even getting the messages from their patients who are unhappy, um, which detransitioners should probably take that extra step. And so I wrote a piece on detransitioners in 2017 for The Stranger at Seattle's alt Weekly. And I interviewed maybe five or six detransitioners, one of whom has now retransitioned. And they all told me that they basically found other coping mechanisms to deal with their gender dysphoria. And a lot of them had to do with physical exercise, dance, really connecting with their body in a way that they hadn't before. You know, I think that exercise, I hate this, but I think that exercise is a solution to many of, uh, many of life's problems. And I hate this because I fucking hate to exercise It's a terrible solution. I, yeah. I'm connecting with your body, feeling good in your body, feeling, uh, <sighs> feel, feeling like your body.
0: Exercise is a solution to, to gender dysphoria. That's a hot take.
1: <laughs> you know, I think that exercise is a, is a works to combat depression and anxiety. I don't do it, but I think it's much easier to take the pill, you know, but I, I do think that there are other things that people can do to alleviate their dysphoria. And true. the it problem is, is that yeah. there's this trend within mm-hmm. therapy so that somebody goes to a therapist complaining about something and they leave with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And we saw this, I think there's some parallels between satanic panic and the, re- the repressed memory craze of the 1980s and 90s where somebody would would go into a therapist Mm -hmm. experiencing depression and leave believing that their father had taken them to a cave and raped them for 10 years. It's probably not as dramatic as what happened then, but this is something that I've talked to a number of people about. You know, They have depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety. There's a connection with autism, as you mentioned. And instead of addressing the underlying issues, they go to therapists or sort of are fast track. The idea is that transition is the solution to all that ails you. And I can see why, because if Mm -hmm. you watch YouTube videos or follow trans influencers, it is oftentimes posed as the solution to all that ails you. And I think that uh, for some people, it probably is. If their one issue is gender dysphoria, but if there are underlying conditions, just changing your sex or trying to appear to change right. your sex is not going to solve all of your problems. Yeah,
0: I think one thing is that depression is really a, a hell of a drug. Like if you're depressed for prolonged periods of time, often you will do you will do or try anything that seems to hold a promise of curing it. And mm-hmm. if you're depressed and you're you're also, you know, not exactly the stereotype of your gender, it can be very easy to go down a rabbit hole online and be quickly convinced and hopeful that this, and sort of put all your eggs in the basket of gender transition as the reason why you are sad in life. And um, mm-hmm. it's always it's always a guess and a hope. It's a hope that if I get the surgery, I will be happy. And like you said, I mean, that can be true. It's hard to know. It's It's actually impossible to know before you do it whether that will actually make you happy. And that puts people in a very difficult position because you're just you're essentially betting on something that has a lot of side effects and if the bet turns out the wrong way then you may be out lots of time, money, effort and health complications. It's just impossible to know how to address something like that. On the other side, if I picture being the parent that says no to every request that my gender dysphoric kid asks of me from puberty blockers to testos to hormones if i just say no 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 i'm basically risking my i could just be risking my whole relationship with my child it's like they they may just yeah. hate me for the rest of their lives right i may just basically sacrifice i'm risking that at, at the very least and that's so difficult for a parent to do
1: yeah and that's i think that's true of parenthood in general you know and the teenage years are so traumatic in some ways and dramatic. And there's so much turmoil. I mean, even kids without gender dysphoria, lots of them hate Mm -hmm. their parents. Ideally, you grow up and you grow out of it. I talked to a trans guy recently who transitioned as an adult. And I was asking him if he, given the opportunity, if he wishes that he could have taken puberty blockers. And he says, no, because he he didn't have that option, because he transitioned as an adult, he knew that this was the right thing. He had lived Mm -hmm. as a woman and it didn't Mm -hmm. work. It didn't work for him. So he he knew that this was the right thing. And so he didn't have that lingering doubt in his mind that you might have if you made this decision when you were nine or 10 or 11 years old, which I think is another reason to be cautious. And we are seeing the, you know, these things come in waves and we are seeing a sort of reversal of the, the very liberal medical guidelines on this, not as much in the U.S., but in Finland and I believe Sweden and in the U.K., they're being much more cautious about widespread use of puberty blockers now for these exact reasons.
0: Yeah. Um, at the same time, I, I, th- I thought I saw something by a world authority on...
1: Yeah, WPaths.
0: Yeah. What What was it? The, they, they made some changes in the opposite direction yeah, recently so as well, right?
1: WPATH, this is the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. And they just, they are in the, I don't know if it's formally been released, but Emily Bazelon wrote a piece in a New York Magazine last week. She got an advanced copy of, of the WPATH new guidelines. And they set the minimum limit for surgery at, I believe 14 down from six or maybe hormones. I should look it up actually.
0: One of the ages went from 17 to 16, I think, or it was 18 to 17.
1: Yeah. Or six, I think it was 16 Mm -hmm. to 14. And then one of them, there had been no minimum age limit for, um, for surgery, I believe, or hormones. And they set an age limit at 14.
0: I want to talk about some of the other ways in which gender identity has been appearing in the news, especially lately. I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of flashpoints. Obviously, Leah Thomas and transgender women in sports has been a big one. It's hard to know what to say about that. I mean, obviously, I think there is an advantage to anyone who's gone through male puberty, for sure. There may even be an advantage simply by being born male for most sports and certainly all sports that require upper body strength. And um, so I'm curious what you made of the whole Leah Thomas culture war fiasco.
1: I found this to be a very interesting, of course, moments. Uh, some of the reporting on this was just egregiously bad. I Hearing places like NPR pretend that there is no obvious biological, physical advantage that males have over females was it's sort of a Emperor has no clothes situation. Um, I saw yesterday. I, I think that there's been some shifts in the media on this in recent months. And yesterday, the New York Times published a piece that said something like, "Scientists believe that males have an advantage of, of females over sports." Yeah, no shit, really. <laughs>
0: Do you remember? Uh, the, I remember there, there was an Onion article maybe ten or fifteen years ago that, that read, um, "Study shows stabbing monkeys with a knife causes them harm."
1: Yeah, yeah. This is what this is what, <laughs> is, what, is, what is happening. But you will still see lots of people say that males don't have a biological advantage, or even if they do, it doesn't matter it's because the value of inclusivity is more important than fairness. So uh, this swimming, international swimming association FINA, just this week they established new guidelines, basically saying that if you're under the age of twelve, if you have if you have transitioned over yeah. the age of twelve, then you can't swim with with females. I think that's and then they so they established three categories: male, female. An open. I would have done things a little differently. Um, for one thing, yeah. Uh twelve to me, twelve year old boys do, I think, have a physical advantage over twelve year old females. Um so I probably would have set the age lower to like nine or something. But I also am against puberty blockers. So that's basically saying that that if you're born male, you can't compete with females. So that which is what I believe. I do believe that they have a, you know, an advantage. This emerges during puberty, but I also don't believe yeah. that kids should get puberty blockers. So but in terms of establishing this third open category, I would have just established two categories, female and open. That way, yeah, that because a third category, there's just like how many, it's a small number of people. So who's going to compete in that?
0: Although, I mean, if, if it really is 5% yeah. of youth, then there could be whole trans leagues. That's true. There could be.
1: That's true. That's next.
0: But one suspects that that 5% number is heavily influenced by social contagion and if the culture changes to where it was, you know, 8 years ago, those numbers may go far down when it's when there's less of a cachet to being trans.
1: Yeah, that's what I anticipate that this this is not going to be a stable identity that people have throughout their adult lives. When it comes to the sports thing, I thought mm-hmm. this is a really dumb hill for trans activists to die on. Because it is so obvious to everybody with eyes that males have a biological advantage and people will deny it. I saw Megan Rapinoe made some statement about how inclusivity is more important. And also if males had a huge biological advantage, then trans women would be dominating women's sports. I don't care that Leah Thomas is a better swimmer than these women. Leah Thomas shouldn't be in the race in the first place. To me, winning has nothing to do with it. It's just, it's unfair. And also, as a woman, mm-hmm. do I really want someone with a penis in the locker room with me? No, I don't. So there's other issues there. And I thought just from, you can look at the polling on this. Democrats are obviously far more likely to, uh, to think that trans women should be permitted in women's sports than Republicans are. But it's still, they're not, there's not huge majorities of people who think that trans women should be allowed in, in female sports. So I think this was a losing issue on the part of trans activists. A really dumb thing to glom onto. And I think that we're seeing a lot of actually transphobic and homophobic backlash because of this, this push from, from trans activists. We're seeing bills that will criminalize youth transition. I am not in favor of Mm -hmm. youth transition, but I'm really not in favor of of Mm -hmm. parents, of kids being taken from their parents. Like, Governor Greg Abbott has threatened to do. In Texas, these laws are, are very draconian. I think they're very cruel and bad. And I think they're a direct response to this pushing on the left, pushing too far on this issue. You know, I, all of this stuff was sort of sort of inevitable, but it's like, it's this pendulum, it swings back and forth. You know, things go crazier on the left, and then they go crazier on the right, and then they go crazier on the left, and then they go crazier on the right. And those of us in the center are just sort of here watching it. And I also I'll say, like, even if you object to youth transition and you think it's a bad idea and kids shouldn't transition, even if you think that these laws criminalizing it, you should be against these laws. Because if Texas passes a law criminalizing youth transition, California, Oregon, Washington are going to pass a law Mm. stating that kids don't have to have parental permission to transition, which is actually happening now. So if you want fewer kids to transition- Yes, this is happening. So if you want fewer kids to transition, you should also not be in favor of these laws. We need to get to some sort of rational center that is based on evidence. And we do have some evidence about whether or not these things work. Unfortunately, these you know medical institutions have been mostly captured, at least at this moment.
0: Yeah, it is, it is um, increasingly- people don't trust therapists, doctors, school counselors, teachers. And increasingly, I I don't trust any of these authorities. I mean, the, the, I would say the older I get, the less and less I trust the sort of bureaucracy of so-called experts on most issues, especially any issue that's been politicized, race, gender. So often ideology comes before evidence and expertise and frankly, IQ or, or innate talent uh, or, or skill or expertise or um, preparedness, all of that stuff, when ideology gets involved, it comes before all of that. And that's human nature, unfortunately. So the moment an issue gets politicized, the opinion of the public school teacher or you know the therapist is often going to stem from their ideology rather than a neutral, dispassionate look at the evidence. And once I know that, I become a lot more hesitant to you know, throw my kid into the bureaucracy and and, and trust that it will give them the answer that is consistent with the research. And there's this huge tension now, especially going on about parental control in the schools. And this is the origin of the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. And um, I'm curious if you had a, a, a take on that bill.
1: Yeah, I think the bill, like a lot of these anti-CRT bills, I think there is a way to get at the root of the problem, which is I think there is an actual problem in terms of this spread of, of what is some like wacky gender ideology among primary schools, primary school teachers. But this bill doesn't do that. The bill mm-hmm. was written, and it, like like these CRT bills, too vague, too broad. If you really want to address the problem and not make this some political grandstanding, you would make it narrow and specific. But the way that it's written, the you know, it'll have a it'll have a I think a chilling effect on on gay mm-hmm. teachers who will be afraid to like talk about their spouses, things like that. So I think the bill wasn't it wasn't written to appeal to me though. The bill was written to sort of sort of red meat for the base. Um, and I think the same is true of many of these these anti-CRT bills. Yeah, it's... Um, there are ways to do this, but this, this, this ain't it. I,
0: I wonder if there are ways to do it, though. You know, I, I really, more and more, I think if if you try to use a law to outlaw the teaching of bad ideas, it may not be possible to write the language yeah. in a way that can't be abused. So it's so tough to know what to do because I actually agree with, Mm -hmm. I think I agree with the mainstream conservative take about what the problem is. It's like I follow Libs of TikTok. Okay. And if you go on Libs of TikTok, you will find teacher after teacher after teacher that just came out of, you know, Columbia Teachers College and claims to be some sort of expert about gender identity and is going to teach your child in a way to leverage all of the child psychology that wants to please the teacher, right? Like children, they want to be the teacher's favorite, right? And we'll use all of that psychology to elicit the answers. Right. Basically the far left progressive take on gender. That your gender, you have this soul essentially and only you know it and Mm -hmm. will essentially reward the children with the teacher's praise, those children who say that they're not the gender that they were assigned at birth. And from the little I remember of being a kid, I remember how strong the temptation was to be the teacher's favorite, right? And then that puts you on a track, contribute to putting Mm -hmm. you on a track towards puberty blockers or or some kind of intervention you may not really need. So I think that's a problem. I mean, I think that's, that is a big problem. Why should the teacher whose salary I'm paying for, who has a captive audience of our children, be able to indoctrinate them on something that's totally unscientific, right? It's, It's not like I'm saying don't teach evolution in schools, right? That's just science. It's
1: like you're saying, don't teach astrology. Yeah. It's like saying,
0: don't teach astrology or don't teach your religion. I'm like, I don't want them lecturing. Uh, You know, if a teacher got up there and said, here's what happens after death, you burn in hell and here's the way not to get there. That would piss me off because that's, I should have the right to indoctrinate my kids or not. And I certainly don't want my tax money going to people that are not experts on the issue. Uh, You know, an issue where expertise isn't really even defined yet right? It's like not a scientific issue, gender identity. We don't know, we can't even agree how many genders there are, right? How could it be a scientific issue where the research all says this? So I, I agree with right. the problem, but I just, you know, when I see the so-called don't say gay bill, which was, you know, name, that's the name it's critics give it, of course. The problem I have with it is is what you said, which is I have no problem with sort of banning, sexual orientation or gender identity talk for like kindergartners through third graders. I don't remember being told any crucial information about those issues in class at that age. I'm too young to even understand it really. But then it goes on to ban teaching those issues in a non-age appropriate way to any age, which is who gets to define that? I mean, that's just going to be used by actual bigots to throw prosecution that at any teacher that says something they they don't like.
1: Right. And the a lot hinges on the word instruction in the bill. What is instruction? You know, if a teacher says, yes, some families do have two mommies and some families do have two daddies and that is, probably exists in this classroom. Does that count as instruction? Could you get sued for mm-hmm. that? I think that bill in particular is, is really poorly written. And I'm, I'm with you when it comes to the law and the states attempting to solve these these culture war issues I don't think that's the ideal solution and I don't think it works and it, and it leads to things like two different Americas where mm-hmm. even within the state of Texas say they're teaching something totally different in Austin than they are in wherever else Houston Dallas wherever I don't know Round Rock I think that's that's a problem and I, I think you also you mentioned teaching colleges I've, I've interviewed a number of people who come out of teaching colleges. Teaching colleges have always been pretty far to the left. My mom was a, she taught in a teaching college. And I think that's increasingly true. And what they are turning out is activists and activists go to their schools and they want to raise little revolutionaries and they might not even see it as such. I mean, some of them are are transparent about that and some of them aren't. Some of them just really believe that they're doing the right thing. Of course, it's just a matter of values. I think I I was sort of at the end of a sentence there.
0: Yeah, yeah. a lot of them want to raise little revolutionaries and they they don't see it as...
1: Yeah. I have a question for you. Sure. What do you think about teachers putting like pride flags and BLM flags in classrooms?
0: Huh, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, on its face, it seems inappropriate. I immediately go to the shoe on the other foot test you know, right. like, would I be, would liberal parents be okay with an NRA affiliation symbol in a classroom? 100% um, not. No, they wouldn't be. And they would, they would come up with all sorts of arguments, uh, principled arguments about how it's irrelevant to teaching math to demonstrate your support of gun ownership and the NRA or, you know, any, any other right-wing symbol. But BLM, people will often say it's not a political statement. Right, which obviously it is. It's like saying pro life isn't a political statement. You're just pro life, right? right? It's like no, right. well, the the you
1: just love life
0: exactly. If that were really you know, obviously it's 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 great to brand political causes as non political as simply affirming what any halfway decent person would believe, you know, I'm pro happiness, I'm pro, le- you know, that that's the branding, you have to get under the packaging mm-hmm. to understand what is actually being sold. And then we can agree or disagree about it. But I just don't see why a teacher should be able to bring politics into a classroom that is not about politics.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I, I sort of am uncomfortable with agreeing with that. But exactly. I mean, if you try to imagine a, a, parallel, a parallel flag, it does seem like politicking.
0: Although the pride the, the pride, pride flag, flag may be less political than a
1: BLM slogan. Yeah, it signals something. It signals to, to gay right. students, you know, this is a safe space or, or whatever. But now, but the pride flag too, it's so aesthetically unpleasing that I wouldn't want to see that in a class it <laughs> burns my eyes.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think I would have a problem with a pride flag. I think I, I would have a problem with a BLM slogan or a BLM poster, right? Because Black Lives Matter is an mm-hmm. organization that was founded by three individuals and has a manifesto you can read online. It's it's like if if you had a hammer and sickle in a class, presumably that would be something right. you'd have to defend. And it's only because of the cultural moment we live in that you you would be able to get away with sort of not defending that choice. But you know, it's it's an explicitly political organization, BLM. Whereas, of course,
1: it's sort of a, a genius name, though. If, you know, if it was called the Black Power Movement, right?
0: Oh yeah, no, it's a the genius in the branding is is obvious, and one of the reasons, the reason why it blew up so much, because it's it's a, the phrase, like any great political branding, is is just perfect, and it allows for this kind of Mott mm-hmm. and Bailey style argument where you can fall back on simply claiming that you think Black Lives Matter, which who could disagree with that really? And then when push comes to shove, you're actually for defunding the police, right? Which is a highly controversial, unpopular policy in the Black community and the community at large. But then when you get dinged on that, you fall back on, well, really, we're just saying Black Lives Matter and who could disagree with that but a bigot? Whereas the pride flag, I guess I just see as a symbol of... Like what specific policy other than probably support for gay marriage does a pride flag like explicitly signal?
1: I think the old pride flag, mm-hmm. much more politically neutral, although it's not entirely neutral, equality, equal rights. The new pride flag, the progress flag, which has the, it has the the little trans flag, like eating the, eating the rainbow flag. Um, besides being.
0: Oh, I wasn't aware of this. There's a new, there's a new pride flag
1: there's, yeah, there's a new one every year.
0: Oh yeah. I see this shows you how out of the loop I am.
1: Yeah. I just bought one recently. Someone made a, a sort of spoof pride flag that has every <laughs> corporate logo you could possibly imagine in it, as well as the ISIS flag, the Antifa flag, the furry flag. It's hideous. It's hanging outside my house right now. It's got a a hammer and sickle, um, as well as like the Google logo, <laughs> the Amazon logo. Um, I'm waiting for somebody to steal it, and then I can claim to be a victim of a hate crime. But that one, I think mm-hmm. the new, it's called the Progress Pride flag. I think that one's a little bit, a little bit more political, and it, it, it's also just. It's a, I think it's we should, ugly. we should
0: ban all <laughs> ugly flags.
1: God hates flags. <laughs>
0: So I guess the last thing that's been in in the news recently are drag shows, and I guess this breaks into two yes. different kinds of. I mean, there are drag shows where you have a drag queen. Uh, I'm not sure if that is that still the term. Is that still the proper term? It's been yeah. Claimed. I think
1: okay. I think drag queen drag is still queen
0: allowed. like doing a almost stripper like dance in public, and it's like you watch it and you bring your. It, it almost seems like a tourist a tourist attraction. Like, oh, look at this. We have this tradition of mm-hmm. men dressing up like very ornate and heavily made up women and then doing a, almost like a pull routine. And it's, you can feel however you want to feel about that. It's like, it's awesome or it's gross or it's neutral. It's however you feel about it. And then there are sometimes children at the shows. And then there's a separate thing of schools hiring drag queens to, paying drag queens to come into class and read the class a book you know, like dressed ornately and and New York city has spent $200,000 apparently on this for some inexplicable reason over the past four years. So what do you make of all that?
1: Yeah. I, this whole thing is so confusing in some ways. I mean, the drag queen, this started with drag queen story hour where drag queens would go read books to kids at libraries. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that about mm-hmm. that. It's sort of a clownish thing. Kids wouldn't, right. There's nothing inherently sexual about it if you're not like flashing the children, which Libs of TikTok posted a video of a drag queen actually doing that. My basic take on this is that if a drag queen is doing something that would be inappropriate for a woman to do in public then you probably shouldn't take your kids to do it. I don't think, I think drag is an adult thing. I don't, I don't think kids belong in, in bars, obviously. Also like who wants kids running around where you're watching that kind of shit? So it's not something that if I were a parent, I would probably take my kid to, but like Ron DeSantis said that he was going to like order CPS to investigate parents who take their kids to drag shows. And that is also, that is crazy. That uh-huh. and he's supposed to be the parental rights guy. This is a parental right. Do I think it's inappropriate to take a kid to a, a sexualized drag show? Absolutely. But I don't think that you should be you should lose your child for that. That's oh, just yeah, that's that's crazy I mean, state overreach. I, I saw
0: I saw one of the Lives of TikTok video that I yeah. think it was actually happening in the town I grew up in and I recognized the street. It was it was like a drag queen doing a dance outdoors in a sort of a cafe when there were kids there. And if I had a kid there, I I don't know what I would do. I would sort of be like, it's um, a spectacle and it's kind of inappropriate and it definitely Mm -hmm. would be inappropriate if it were a woman. But somehow the fact that it's a drag queen makes it like a conversation piece in a way that it wouldn't be if it's a woman. It's a very strange kind of thing.
1: Right. I I just... When it comes down to it, I really think that this is about right. parents' choice. Like if uh, if I were a parent, I wouldn't want my kids, I wouldn't let my kids right. watch horror films, you know. But some parents do that. And should sure. they be allowed to do that? Yeah, I think they should be allowed to do it, even if I personally think it's bad parenting. And I think a lot of this is people like Chris Rufo, who's been very transparent about what he's doing. He's a master propagandist. Redefining, he wants to yeah. redefine the term drag and call them trans strippers. Well, most drag queens are not trans. That's not. (laughs) Some of them are, but Chris Ruffo is trying to attach the drag queen issue to the trans issue. And I think a way that's, it would be more dishonest if he weren't so blatant about what he's doing. But I think this is also part of this just sort of panic that's happening right now. Drag queen, this is yeah. not a huge deal. I mean, I don't think that New York City should be paying $200,000 for this.
0: Right. I think that's crazy. my to it. Like, I, I don't but, think it's, um, I don't think you're harming kids by having a drag queen read a book un- unless the book is crazy. And m- most of the books, you know, they're reading like Where the Wild Things Are and just kind of classic kids book.
1: I tweeted this, but they should have the drag queens read Abigail Schreier's <laughs> "Irreversible th- Damage. Yeah,
0: exactly. Really screw everyone up. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, obviously it doesn't make me more excited to pay my taxes when I learn that you spent a quarter of a million dollars and like $50,000 in the last month hiring drag queens to read book that, books that you could just have the teachers read, which I'm also already right. paying for as a taxpayer. It does not inspire confidence. Right. It really right. brings out my inner Ron Swanson in the sense of like, why the fuck is the government taking so much of my money and then just pissing it away when we have so many problems, right? Like mm-hmm. we, resources are scarce and our kids are failing in math and reading. And, you know, Richard Carranza, the school chancellor of, of, of New York, budgets $23 million to anti-bias trainings to be spent over four years. $23 million yeah. to be spent over four years telling teachers, New York teachers, adults to be less racist to the kids. It's like... right. It's absolutely ridiculous. and You
1: should get in on that.
0: It's very lucrative. I mean, my God, it must yeah. be, you know, these DEI anti-bias trainings at this point must be like a several hundred million dollar industry. If New York City alone oh, is absolutely. paying $23 million for it over four years, I mean, that's, it really, it, it does actually, as a New York City taxpayer that materially sees my bank account change, depending on what the the city tax rate is, it uh it does bring out my inner libertarian to see see my money pissed away on things when there this city is like there's a homeless problem there's a crime problem the schools are shit in so many places there are neighborhoods that you can't walk in like East Harlem because you the crime on the on the street is so rampant. It's like, it's absurd and it totally, de- it destroys my faith in, uh, not that I had all that much to begin with, but in public servants and how they choose to spend other people's money.
1: Yeah, typically you can get parents to come in and, and volunteer to read to their kids' classrooms for free. They will do that. Mm-hmm. That happens. That's a thing that people do. Maybe they should have the parents dress up in drag or the teachers dress up in drag. <laughs> I think part of this comes from the immense popularity of RuPaul's drag race. We could probably blame RuPaul for this, <laughs> that drag has gone from something that was subversive and adult to something that was family friendly and now something that is in classrooms and libraries. Mm-hmm. I think concept creep really, uh, or mission creep creep is a, a sort of convenient explanation for many facets of our current moment.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And um, well, We've come to the end of this. I think we've dealt with everything. I think we've solved everything, everything we actually. Solved I think we solved it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you're welcome, world. The
1: one podcast that's in the mall.
0: Yes. Well, uh, if you don't know, blocked and Reported, uh, Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, go listen to it. It's a really fun podcast. And um, what else are you up to these days that my listeners should be aware of?
1: Uh, not much.
0: <laughs> Just hanging out, watching Netflix.
1: Yeah, Seen yeah, it's summertime. So, shows time, so uh, what am I watching lately? I just watched Dope Sick. That was pretty good. I do a, a periodic podcast with Nellie Bowles on Barry White's That's right. I, I heard TGIF. the.
0: Yep. I heard the last episode this week. It's really good. TGIF every Friday. That's honestly. It's not every Barry Friday. It's
1: like, it's like every third Friday. It's whenever gotcha. we feel like it. But yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm on Twitter. Otherwise, um, I'm usually sitting in my backyard with my dog.
0: Nice. What are you on Twitter? Kitty something?
1: Kitty Perzog.
0: Kitty Perzog. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Katie.
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to you.
0: If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for
1: your support.